the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine and Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our topic today, do you want to throw out, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. We appreciate all of those who do support the show. Hopefully, eventually, I'll, I'll come up with some better tiers and, and things to make that more attractive. I've told Taylor multiple times I don't like the idea of putting the content itself behind a paywall and maybe focusing on some more interactive type things in some of the tiers would be, you know, a better way to to like extend that out. But anyhow, today we're looking at chapter one of Antiedipus, The Desiring Machines. And if I'm not mistaken, this is Taylor, this is your favorite book, right? You Am know, I it's, that up? it's I mean, it's 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 hard to say what my favorite book of all time. But in terms of theory, philosophy, realm, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's up there with Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche and, you know, some of the works of, of Simon Dillon, of Rie and Laura Well, all of whom I came to from Dillas and Guattari. Being in a Venice is one of my favorite books as well by Badu. But, but all, you- all those thinkers, I don't believe I would have interacted with without reading Deleuze and Deleuze and Quattari, specifically Anti-Oedipus. Yeah. So it's it's definitely one of the books that I have slammed my head against <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and sort of dived into most. Yeah. So if that makes it my favorite, then, then yeah, I would say that's <laughs> not a far cry. Right on. Honestly, I might have to say libidinal economy might be my favorite bit of theory, philosophy. Writing, I mean theory. Well, yeah, I mean, theory yeah. fiction, I mean, or, or or just the the writing of the text, yeah. and the certainly the aesthetics of it, perhaps more than necessarily like the takeaways. Even though the takeaways are interesting, and like a lot of it is echoing and inspired by. It's interesting that looking back, I mean, obviously, libidinal economy written in response to this text, and it's sort of like I'm trying to th- think of a good metaphor for that relationship because I think it's not necessarily a is it? Would you consider it a remix, or would you consider it? I'm thinking of what was it, the Gray Album or something that the mashup of like Jay Z and and Lincoln Park or something? Oh my God! No, it was like wait, the Gray Album was the White Album of the Beatles with Jay Z or something. Okay, all right, yeah. I mean, a remix is. Maybe... I think that un- that kind of undermines what Leotard achieves. I right because you know you're right. I don't know if it's even as much written in response to. It's definitely in the wake of it. Inspired, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. definitely got inspirations, and Leotard has what that fifty-page essay, you know, that that's detailing some right. of the some of the problems that he susses out and tries to reframe 
from anti-oedipus so it's obvious that leotard read it as soon as it came out i mean it was it was kind of it was the rage of course for its time it was it was a little bit of the rage foucault himself in his preface to the work for the english translation talks about its its reception being beyond merely the philosophical community that it that it that it resonated with a lot of you know, and not just in academia, right? That that mm-hmm. it that it had a life of its own outside of a you know. This is why he's like it's not just a flashy Hegel or or whatever. It's it's not just another work of philosophy. He wants to liken it to a work of art or to a work of ethics, which I think Guattari would approve of, right? With yeah, as we talked about with you know the three ecologies and his last book, Chasmosis, the ethico aesthetic paradigm, right? And and as you're pointing out, why. Liminal Economy by Leotard, published two years later after this book in 74, you know, this book being published in 72 in the wake of 68 and, and sort of giving vent to a lot of the changes in the intellectual milieu. You know, right. Leotard yeah, exactly. too is the ethical paradigm is definitely perhaps something that, that the reader has to work at to, to suss out and to pin down because Leotard is slippery in that domain. But it's obvious that the aesthetic appeal of that text is it keeps us even at the you know even when it's most stultifying like intellectually it's still moving us and that's we could say libidinally right it's still mm-hmm. yeah um, and i think that there's something to this as well in anti-oedipus but i do think that anti-oedipus is much less you know trying to it's far less deranged in its well, mad, I, it's mad scientism is there's more right. it's, it's mad scientists more than mad art even though they mobilize art the work itself yeah. is it trying to is it trying to mimic art and liberal economy really isn't either but you know what i mean like it's it, it is trying to to make something work with these concepts mm-hmm. i mean obviously that opening passage of anti-oedipus direct inspiration i think for the opening passages of libidinal economy with the this Description of the great ephemeral skin. Right. We read them both during the uh, Wicked Leotar sessions, so I don't know that we necessarily need to delve into there other than perhaps to, I don't know, maybe it is good to at least. You know, it is a kind of a famous intro. Yeah. But when we have read it before, the it is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times, at other times in fits and starts, it breathes, it heats, it eats, it shits and fucks. What a mistake to have ever said the id, which is obviously, you know, that's late Freud. Mm-hmm. When he is in his topographical schema, trying to understand, you know, the relations of the different agencies of the the ego, the id, and the superego, and how they sort of help complement the dynamic, the earlier dynamic and economic theories of libido, you the know, factory the model, right? Or no? What do you, What do you mean by that? That's one thing present in Leotard and also in this chapter is the mention of the discussion of Marx specifically did Loves and Guattari reference as, well, they don't come out and say that he's the first libidinal economist, but they do reference that he recognizes something important that things that are not enjoyable can... Suffering, right, is, right. is, is a form pleasure, of enjoyment. Pleasure, yeah. yeah. Enjoyment can be derived from suffering, which... Obviously, that goes into the whole hold me tight and spit on me. Yes. From libidinal economy. I think it is interesting to acknowledge Marx as the the first libidinal economist in that sense. And from that progression, so you have that the factory model of production of desire that sort of, I guess, 
Marx is kind of opening up that ter- terrain of possibility. And then later comes Freud, who eventually gets, you know, with Oedipal Complex, that's more of the theater, right? Deleuze and Guattari say that the factory model gets overtaken by the theatrical model with anti-Oedipus. With Leotard, he, he tries to show that, you know, there's this tension between the the sort of young girl Marx that's yearning for an organic totality, mm-hmm. wh- whether it be of theory, whether it be of capital, whether it be of even the proletariat, and then this old critical man Marx. So we can see some of the inspirations in, if not this equation that we see in Deleuze and Guattari and in Leotard, this notion that political economy is a little libidinal economy. We can see the the roots of that in, right. in Marx. Yeah. And and the way that they mobilize Marx early on in this chapter is indicative of some of the, you know, some of the vectors and the directions that they want to imbue Freudian theory with, right? I think the reason why we should kind of understand in post-World War II French philosophy, right, with this rehabilitation and it's not even rehabilitation, but it's really a more widespread um, reading of Nietzsche, you know, being in translation and as kind of a response to uh, to, to the, the vogue of Hegel and Heidegger and Husserl in the in the pre-war period, although, of course, they continued their somewhat their dominance afterwards, too. But, you, you know, you have this introduction of Nietzsche that really, you know, we can give Deleuze some credit for for doing yeah. some of this too. He's not the only one, uh, you know, but he tries to show how Nietzsche is this vector to Marx and Freud, who are both not only interested theoretically in, in terms of production, whether it be social or libidinal more directly, right, uh, in terms of the production of the unconscious, but also in, in invigorating practices, right, invigorating social practices of economic investigation, but also these analytic investigations that Freud was undertaking in terms of of investigating the unconscious and means of approaching it, right? So I think that that's why yoking Freud and Marx together becomes very important because it is about yoking the the libidinal and the the political in ways that are more direct, if that makes sense. Along those lines, like you mentioned briefly, Deleuze is not the first or not the only. That's a very common coupling there. And I guess in the introduction as well, it's stated that this is not Freudo-Marxism. You might be able to articulate that distinction, like how is this breaking from more Frankfurt School type Freudo or other elements of Freudo-Marxism? Obviously, Reich is mentioned, who is a big mm-hmm. name within that field, but I think also Marcusa and some of the other Frankfurt right. School theorists do a similar, well, in, in a certain sense, similar. I don't know. Maybe there's, maybe it's a very nuanced distinction to be made, but. It's not a bad point to bring up. Right. But I mean, also you have, like we mentioned, Leotard obviously is is doing something similar, Baudrillard, et cetera, right? Even I think, you know, Derrida is taking some some Nietzsche, picking up some Nietzschean. Yeah, thought, Nietzsche right? and Freud and and Marx, especially. I mean, even uh, a little Le- later. Lacan, even in a sense, right, with some of his. Well, Lacan is returning to Freud and sort of reviving him in a faithful way, but also updating him not only in light of with uh, of the psychoses, but also in light of yeah, structural linguistics, in light of some of the advances in the studies on Marx, particularly with Althusser and his students, you know, Balabar and Machere and um, gosh, well, I'm 
I mean, Deleuze studied under Alzé as well, right? Deleuze and Foucault, if I'm not mistaken. And I, uh, they, Derek, may have, they may have I studied three. under him, but they he, was, he wasn't like their main... Gotcha. He wasn't on the the dissertation board of either. I don't believe, but right. yeah, I mean, even I mean, I guess I would I would back up and say like definitely wouldn't call you know this if we want to think about the post structuralist break, you know, the the downfall of structuralism around the time of the sixty eight quasi revolution in May. You see that in France that structuralism had had run its course that there had begun to be a lot of books on literally on what is structuralism, not just from linguists, but also from anthropologists. And so there was this rise and fall, particularly accentuated by Lacan and not just sort of, um, not just taking from Levi-Strauss, but also taking from Jakobsen and linguistics, right? So you've got these different disciplines that are developing these ideas, particularly with the more widespread usage of, you know, someone like Saussure and his course on general linguistics, you know, all of that is sort of bubbling in the mixture for what happens in France with a with with sort of Nietzsche as the vector of Freud and Marx in a way that I think for Deleuze and Guattari avoids what they see. And you gave two examples, Reich and, and Marcuse, right? Like if we look at chapter one, starting with Reich, you know, with his book on the um, mass psychology of fascism, right? right? They really praise him for crystallizing this problem that will be a refrain throughout this work. Yeah, which is that we can't be satisfied with the hypothesis that the masses were duped, right? Duped in terms of false consciousness, would you say, or well, false consciousness, or they, or that they were ignorant of, say, whether we look at. Italy and Mussolini, or particularly like German Nazism with Hitler, you know, they'll say later throughout the book, and I think Leotard himself says it in Liberal Economy, that, you know, the masses were riled up and they got off, you know, they got hard off of Hitler's, you know, rousing speeches. And so it's not enough to say that they were tricked or they were fooled, that the real problem is how the masses came to desire fascism. Now, this is something that, as I said, will be a thread throughout the book, and they will try to, especially by the time we get to the fourth chapter on schizoanalysis, they will try to articulate this in terms of pre-conscious and conscious interests and unconscious investments. And we'll get back to that. I'll just kind of like throw that yeah, out as a- prime, as, as, Primist, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, but uh, with Reich, you know- they don't say it in chapter one, but one of the things that they will bring up later when they come back to Reich is that we see later Reich begins to kind of delve into this quasi-mystical, I say quasi. Right. This With myth, or this, orgone, right? Yeah, this mystical, this, bio, this vitalist mysticism or this mystical yeah. vitalism of hypothesizing these non-perceptible whether we call it molecules or atoms of energy that are responsible for, for biological life, right? Or, for, or really for energizing animate movement, animate life of any kind, right? So the Orgone, Orgone can be, it reminds me of when we were talking about Beyond the Pleasure Principle about a month ago when you brought up the, uh, not just the tardigrades, but the, the whole kind of spermatozoid fungal theory, right? That life comes from, panspermia sort of, or whatever yeah panspermia kind of stuff so there's so you see reich is is trying to really kind of short circuit or propose a detour around the problems of the social and the individual 
mm-hmm. or the social and the psychic to get at this mystical ether that would be charged with with life. Right? And he builds these wooden boxes with cotton and these different these different experimental chambers for measuring orgone, these units of biological like thetans or something. Energy. Right? <laughs> right. It's it's kind of that way, except he didn't start a cult necessarily. <laughs> I mean, like one could have imagined a right. a Reikian cult that would have developed out of that. But that in chapter one, their main problem isn't there with Reich. Let me turn to the because it's good to actually read okay, 29 and 30. This starts on the bottom of page 29. I don't know if you want to follow along or Whatever, but I mean, like it, it's a very it's a very beautiful passage. Just because they start the the paragraph introducing Reich with saying, like, even the most repressive forms of social production and reproduction are produced by desire, which is kind of a problem. If they say that desire and the social that's all there is, yeah. Then this gets back to why I say in chapter four they will start to really concretize these notions of conscious interest or pre pre conscious interest and unconscious investment. And how those two, one can be consciously endeavoring to, say, join a revolutionary group or a militant group, whatever, and agitate for forms of liberation, but unconsciously be investing in older forms of, you know, the old body of the old social body or, or old kind of one can be unconsciously investing in reactionary formations while consciously and just we've talked about it before, but this is just like an example of Guattari's continual dissatisfaction with the um, with the the French Communist Party. Anyway, we'll get back to that stuff. With Reich, they say that you know, as I pointed out, what what needs to be the question is why the masses wanted fashion, why they desired it, and not some cheap answer that they were just tricked. Which really begs the question, but also is kind of like the way Adorno talks about evil, but that by castigating Nazism or, or Hitler or whatever other atrocities in, in, in history as evil, it's a stopping point for intellectual inquiry because it's, it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's a self-evidence. They quote, I'm quoting them, they say, yet Reich himself never manages to provide a satisfactory explanation of this phenomenon of the desire of fascism. Right. Because at a certain point, he reintroduces precisely the line of argument that he was in the process of demolishing by creating a distinction between rationality as it is or ought to be in the process of social production and the irrational element and desire. And by regarding only this latter as a suitable op- uh, subject for psychoanalytic investigation. So, so they go on to say that that leads to a psychoanalysis that sees desire as irrational and therefore, we get back to these notions of negativity being primary, right? Or lack being primary, right? right? So, and for them, making that kind of split between the rational and the irrational, that on one side is desire and the irrational, on the other side is rationality and never two shall meet, that tendency reproduces some of the, the paralogisms, the dead ends of, of thinking. And they have a footnote where they... They mentioned Marcuse, right? That even though they have these advantages by critiquing a sort of culturalism, kind of like Freud critiqued a sort of uh, a certain biologism, they also fall back into a kind of binary that that would make desire into the 
into its, its negative image. And same could be kind of said for Floyd when, you know, towards the end of his life, he's more and more bringing into the back door these surreptitious anthropological and also biological models to try and kind of figure out how formations like the Oedipus complex are not just ontogenetic, but phylogenetic, that they may have been inherited from some primal historical crisis in the past where the primordial father is killed by the sons. And, and that sets up the, the taboo, right, against, it sets up not just the, the incest taboo, but also this prohibition about, of having that position, right? And therefore there's castration, et cetera. We, you know, we'll get to Oedipus, obviously. We, we will, not just in the book, but today in our talk. I think that that would be a quick way to get, to summarize an answer to your question about how what Deleuze and Guattari are doing is not just a Freudo-Marxism. It's not just bringing in Freud at convenient points to bolster Marx or bringing in Marx at convenient points to open Freud up to the social, right? I think for them, it's much more than just a, a straightforward, direct blending or mixing of these names and leaving the the rest of the edifices untran not transformed. They're not always going to have a kind word to say about Marx. In this chapter, they they use him in a way that that is very approving and that is very helpful. Later, we'll see that they will push him at points, like Leotard pushed him as well. But obviously, for purposes of this chapter, the point is, I think, less a question of even critiquing Freud on the terms themselves than of of looking at what psychoanalysis has become and what are its repressive measures. And it's, especially when it relies on the Oedipus complex so much. I guess maybe to go back, another sort of basic point is the title, right, is Anti-Oedipus is not inspired by this negativity towards Oedipus exactly. It's more referencing the Antichrist, right, or Antichrist, the, the Nietzsche, correct? Or I think that it's, I think that it's. Or perhaps both, right? <laughs> that's definitely one of them that, to get to your other point. I mean, because that goes it's, into, it's, is that ethical too? Like, is Antichrist an ethical, or am I thinking more of beyond? Oh, I, I, I do think so. I do think that there are ethical concerns with the Antichrist. The, this relentless sort of assault of Christianity and its quote-unquote morals, which Nietzsche is more and more convinced that it's, or is just at bottom convinced that it brings us further and further away from quote-unquote nature, that it kind of alienates us from desire, one could say, you know, in these terms. So yes, in that sense, I think that one of the inspirations for the title would be Antichrist. Your other point being anti-Oedipus is for them a way of saying, because they'll, they'll, they'll say in the, in the context of Klein at the end of this chapter, that even though Klein makes, makes a, a seeming ad advance by continually, objects, yeah. yes, right, right, by exactly, by continually looking at partial objects. And so there seems to be an advance. She always seemingly relates partial objects back to global persons, back to daddy, mommy, me, and therefore pushes, merely pushes Oedipus back, back, back further. And so there, and so everything before the introduction of the Oedipus complex around the age of five to six and the latency period up to puberty is now it's all pre-Oedipal. And so for them, they say that what's in, what matters is an anedipal vision. So I, I kind of take anti-Oedipus in that sense of an anedipal, of a kind of without yeah. Oedipus. And the other possible 
now that you, since you've asked the question, the other possible uh, inspiration for the title is a work by Ingalls, the anti anti during. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't even think about that. But that's uh, which someone you knows seventy eight. Well, it's almost well, which is really yeah, because that's that's actually a great point because I believe in anti during is where Engels discusses this sort of the family unit as sort of an instantiation of the logic mm-hmm. of capital and turn, which really makes sense because for thinking and as far as being concerned with reproduction, the reproduction of capital, which sort of is hinted at a bit here it's not as explicitly argued at least in this chapter so forcefully perhaps but that is present i think right and and, you know this is this is a famous text um about the state not being abolished but withering away Engels provides a pretty classic definition of political economy there right that it's um it's a historical science so yeah, you could see that anti-during could be one of those another possible influence f- for the title. And as I'm reading now, I'm, I just looked it up. Apparently, the title recalls Julius Caesar's polemic anti-Cato. So there's yeah. a, there is a kind of a, an interesting history of these anti-texts, yeah. right? I think the anti-during is quite that is really really interesting because of how really it kind of lends itself to this anti-Oedipal formation, or at least. Mm-hmm. And not being sort of this universality, because I do think the nuclear family only makes sense in the in terms of private property. Why else would you give a fuck? If there's no private property, there's no incentive to have this familial structure. If everything and everyone belongs to everyone else, then, you know. <laughs> Were you meaning to quote Brave New World? I'm always doing two things at once. <laughs> Well, you said everything belongs to everyone else. You didn't say everyone belongs to everyone else. So you well, I said everyone, everyone and every. Okay, yeah. So, so you weren't quite uh, quoting, but 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 it was playing off of it. Yeah. Yes, uh, you Certainly. know, and it, it's interesting that by bringing that by bringing that point up, you actually get us to the last chapter or the last paragraph in the chapter where they bring up Foucault and Foucault's his uh, seminal work on the history of madness. He's showing how the familial relation and relationship between family and madness can be traced back to the whole of century and bourgeois society and how the bourgeois and how the family became the measuring rod of responsibility of its members and their possible guilt, parental complex, etc. So they're saying, so really, if we take that title anti-Oedipus as, as wanting to echo Ingalls and anti-Deering, they turn to Foucault and say that all psychoanalysis is doing with the Oedipus complex then is completing a task begun in the 19th century with traditional classical psychology mm-hmm. and this kind of moralizing, you know, this moralizing, but also this kind of hygienics and eugenics of bolstering the family and the family unit. And I say eugenics because obviously, you know, with the more widespread boom of imperialism and this fear of the of the the virility and yeah. reproductive capacities of of the other of the subjugated other across the globe, right? right? This is one of those key deliriums and fascinations. If we take that seriously, that nod towards Foucault at the end of the the chapter, then then if if psychoanalysis is taking up the mantle, the the gauntlet waged by classical psychology in the 19th century in bolstering, in using the Oedipus complex as this universalizing means of bolstering 
bourgeois families, then it does continue in that, that pseudoscientific eugenicist vein of worrying about the nuclear family disintegrating and therefore um, the future of European, of the European people, whatever that is, right? I mean, because it's, because it's more of a fantasy and a, and a, but it is a, but it is immediately a desire, a, a desiring investment in this future of, um, of a subject group or of a, of a majority, of a white majority. I mean, I think a big part of this anti-Oedipus, right, is what Deleuze and Guattari want to do here is problematize subjectivity or the subject in an extremely radical fashion, right? They're saying at the heart of the subject, if you're using this, you know, I think they use the model or the image of the egg, right? And these sort of concentric circles and so forth with at the center is the desiring machine and the subject itself is sort of on the periphery of, of those circles. At the center is is machinic desire or desiring machines rather. This gets us to the third synthesis. This gets us to the third synthesis wherein the subject is adjacent to the process, is adjacent to, as you said, the desiring machines. And they, this is also where they, they quote Marx, right, that we brought up earlier, even suffering, as Marx says, is a form of self-enjoyment. Mm-hmm. I'm on page 16. And they turn to Schreber. For most of these syntheses, they will turn to Schreber. And there's a reason for it, obviously, not only to establish a continuity with psychoanalytic discourse, but also because Schreber, um, unlike all the other cases in Freud's oeuvre, besides maybe a little bit the Wolfman and somewhat the, you know, we could even say uh, some of the, the Ratman's obsessionalness, although that gets wrapped back into neurosis, you know, Schreber is one of the exceptions that proves the rule of Freud analysis. You know, Schreber is with his psychoses, with his, one could even label him among the schizophrenics, right? He is an exception to the case studies in Freud's, in his work. And so what we see, as we talked about a little bit, right, with, with Schreber, uh, the fantasy delirium really is what Deleuze and Guattari want to say, because they would say delirium is, is the lived experience of delirium is primary to, to any of the analytic notions of fantasy. But Schreber feeling himself becoming woman is primary to this then delusional world of having to sustain God's continuous demand for enjoyment. And right. he says, even though this, even though his, you know, opening his anus to the, the solar God nerves and being impregnated by them is, is in excruciating and agonizing little bits, little shares of enjoyment fall his way. Right. And so that is where is Schreber the subject in that? And for Deleuze and Guattari, we can only really situate him in this arc, in the sweep of the circle of these little shares, these little residues of, of enjoyment that are produced in the, in the machinery. And later on, well, they do define schizophrenia by three terms later on. We can get into that, you know, that by dissociation, autism and space-time or this development of a, of a separate world, of a being in the world. But the, I think the important thing for the subject, as you said, is adjacent to the process, is not at the center, and is defined by, you know, this share of enjoyment that comes his way. And they say that there is no fixed subject except through repression. And there it's important to understand that they're using repression in a wider sense than merely the Freudian psychoanalytic 
term, mm -hmm. they're meaning both because there's two words in French for repression, and we'll see that as we go along. There is obviously the word refoulon, which is psychic repression, which is the term psychoanalytic term, but there's also, they have the word repression also, which is more suited to what we might think of as oppression, right, of, of social repression. And so we could say that there is no fixed subject except for these, these, this double pincer, these, these two types of repression. Otherwise, as you said, the subject is adjacent, is this, you know, the sweep along the, the curve of the, you know, of, of the process. They quote Nietzsche, right? Every name in history is I. Yeah, that's so good. You know, this, this, and for which, them, that type of statement from Nietzsche, which we especially see at the end of his life, right before his 10-year catatonic, state, you know, when he enters this delirium, you know, that this type of statement from Nietzsche is like the quintessential kind of schizo pronouncement. And we see that in Schreber too. We only hint upon it in our, in our discussion of Schreber, but you know, the way that Schreber even divides God up into the lower and higher God into these different empires, right? The Persian, the Roman, the Greek, you know, they'll say later in, in the text that the unconscious is swarming with races and, uh, and peoples it is not inherently racist, but it is racially populated, if you will, right? If we can make that distinction, that it is concerned with the names of history, with the movements of races on the, on the body of the earth, et cetera. What do you think about sort of along these lines? And I mentioned this too within discussions of uh, Wicked Leotard was desire as, as a will to power and also to like extend that out to this model of subjectivity, I thought I had this idea like playing on the Schopenhauer work, the world is will and representation. And I said, desire as will and representation, mm. which I think is kind of almost a way to sort of sum up the chapter for me was desire as will and representation. Although, you know, I think what Deleuze and Guattari want to do is problematize representation quite a bit and their conception of machinic desire but i think what's even interesting because you mentioned this formula or this all the names in history being i obviously where that leads me is back to sterner and this notion of the i and of the creative nothing as, and as perhaps as a almost a like a negative of or a mirror image of machinic desire or desiring machines rather because for sterner you know obviously largely picking up Hegel and positing this sort of void at the heart of the su of subjectivity is sort of interesting because I think that creative nothing idea is sort of also, you know, it's problematizing subjectivity in its own fashion. You know, one of Stirner's big things is, you know, taking, taking property and there's the dual meaning of property, it's attributes, you know, these attributes of subjectivity that one can put on and discard. This is what's on this sort of periphery, the subjectivity that exists on the periphery. Those little components of subjectification are just little, I don't know, they're like outfits or clothes or masks or whatever that desiring machines can put on or right. to, to actually rep be represented within the world. But I don't know, you could probably articulate this critique of representation better than I could. But I think that maybe there is something interesting about this idea about desire as will and, and representation. And I don't know if Schopenhauer has anything interesting to say or if there's just Schopenhauerian thought that is being filtered into Nietzsche's work as well, or there's like a co-evolution in their ideas or something like that. But 
I love where you're you're going with all of this. And I know that's uh, that's, that's a lot to. Unpack. No, no, it's it's good. I mean, I won't be able to answer everything. I just want to riff off of what you're sure, yeah. what you're going with. I would say I'll leave to the side Nietzsche's early fascination with Schopenhauer and how he transforms him from this question of the will to live, which leads to this road of a will to extinguish desire, right? And this kind of Buddhistic meditation, which Nietzsche opposes to the will to power, which you, where you started with, right? Desire is will to power. And for Guattari, we'll see later in this book when applied to institutions, the question of will to power and institutions is one wherein what they really need for group subjectivity rather than group subjugation is an injection of the death drive, right? This, as I I said, yeah, we talked about three ecologies, right? Yeah. The States armies, churches, which do these old dogs wants to die. That being an example of group will to power in a way that is, cast in a negative light, but I'll leave that to the side. This question of world and desires, will and representation, you know, I mean, obviously you brought up their point that, and they already kind of said here, one of their problems with, with Freud's, you know, Freud's quote unquote discovery of the unconscious, or at least his elaboration of it in concrete terms and, 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 and trying to push that further than it had traditionally been you know, trying to, you know, critiquing classical uh, psychology and philosophy for equating consciousness with the eye or equating consciousness with the mind. And Freud showing how that leaves that really the tip of the iceberg is, is consciousness, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone's probably familiar with that meme, right? I mean, like, physically, we know that icebergs are like, one ninth above water and then the rest is is below and Freud kind of uses, I don't know if he ever explicitly uses the metaphor, but it's apt. It's very apt to describe topographically that like, you know, consciousness is just, is just the, the tip of all of these. That's, that's kind of the mask, if you will, to use your metaphor, that's masking all of uh, so much more of this mental productivity, this even desiring productivity. I think mask, especially like in the context of the theater of representation, not only that theater of representation, right, but that's also driving on this uh, Greek theatrical tradition in which Oedipus itself, the play Oedipus Rex derives, right? And the Greek chorus would wear the masks and so forth. So that's like the imagery that I'm trying to tie in. And and their their problem with representation, I mean, I've articulated this elsewhere when I had the the pleasure and the privilege to last year around the time that my my father passed i was invited onto the um the liz and guattari quarantine group and i do urge the audience if you're listening look them up they're on twitter they've done anti-oedipus pretty much like section by section so there's a ton of stuff that you can find out there whether it be on youtube or soundcloud i definitely uh, urge you to look them up great group of, group of guys but one of the things that obviously comes up a lot in discussing Deleuze and here even Deleuze and Guattari is this polemic against Freud for turning the unconscious into a theater that would be representational. And, and, and I tried to articulate, and I'll just say it real quickly, is that it's not, and we did this, we did this with Leotard. It's, it's, there's obviously this paradox whereby we are trying to represent the non-representational, the sub-representative 
by means of representation. It's not necessarily that representation itself is the enemy. It is making it the the sort of the principle and the and mistaking it for being the productive source of or confusing or conflating the productive productivity of desiring machines or the unconscious with representation itself, which is always already going to like come out of it. So yes, you're right to, to sort of, you know, they only hint at it here where they say like the unconscious is like a factory. It's not without metaphor, right? It's not, it's not a theater. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a factory. The question of Schopenhauer, the other part of will, will and representation you know, they bring up Kant and they point to Kant affecting a critical revolution in the theory of desire. Mm-hmm. And they point to the critique of judgment where Kant defines the faculty or power of desire as the faculty or power of being the cause through one's presentations of the actuality of the object of one's presentations and that's like a that's a fucking mouthful i know (laughs) but kant's point is if we didn't have a faculty of desire and i'm kind of being quick here if we didn't have a faculty of desire then we wouldn't strive to achieve we wouldn't know what is possible because we would only strive within a very circumscribed realm of what we already knew to be possible so desire even when it shows itself to be kind of self-contradictory in desiring the impossible which kind of resonates with Lacan a little bit with, you know, the possible real, et cetera. But Kant's showing that even in these misplaced wishes of, you know, desiring the impossible, either of changing uh, past events or of sort of eliminating the future in order to like get to the desired moment, these impossibilities, that this faculty is productive insofar as it pushes us to attempt to achieve that which, was previously not deemed possible. So Kant yeah. does see something productive in desire, positive in desire. But of course, the losing Guattari, they give with one hand and take away with the other. They say mm-hmm. like, this is this critical revolution actually doesn't change anything because Kant merely associates desire with these secondary phenomena of, of fantasies, of, of wishes, of wishful thinking even. And so they, this gets back to your point that we were talking about before we started, which was that desire produces and writes directly on the real, right? Desire is like for Guattari, it's transcursive and transduction, transductive and, and deals directly with the real and not with some secondary remote quote unquote psychical reality that would be ensconced and in, in merely in fantasies and et cetera. And I think that that gets us back to the question of will and representation, because I would say on the one hand, Schopenhauer may be too Kantian in that sense. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we take the notion of will in the sense of desire, in the sense in which in The Big Lebowski, where Walter talks about, um, if you will it, it is no dream. Right. Theater now, in the context, he's talking about the state of Israel, right? But, <laughs> but I think if you, if you take it out of context and put it in a, in a Deleuze-Guatrian context, yeah, if you will it, if you desire it, and there is no you. If desiring machines, then it is no dream, mm-hmm. right? If you machine it, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> if you um, machine it, it will come. Yes, there you go. With a good play on will there in particular. Two things that another, there's a couple of, there's the forked road <laughs> that I want to jump off in two directions. One being something that also that 
Deleuze and Guattari problematize here is desire as lack in their presentation of machinic desire or desiring machines rather versus lack, which is the more particularly with Lacan also, you know, which deriving in some part through his reading of Havel via, is it Kojeva? Yeah, Kojev, I believe he's Kojev. Russian or from the Baltic states. I don't know. I like um, to say Kojeva. <laughs> you say Kojev, Kojevi. Uh, Kojeva. I've heard Kohevi, Kohev. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's kind of like I always got into these things. It's like, well, I used to say Levina because I thought he was French, but he's actually, uh, I think, Lithuanian. So not it would be Levinas. You know, it's like... <laughs> Fucking French, they screwed up <laughs> phoneticism for us all, so don't worry. Gotcha. There's that element of things, but how this goes to Schopenhauer is, you know, his flirtation with Buddhism, and one of the biggest tenets of Buddhism is, you know, desire. You know, desire is basically the is the cause of suffering, right? Yes, is, is desire. This sort of elimination of desire is sort of the key to. I don't know, not necessarily the key, but I don't know, overcoming suffering or, or something like that. or To reduce suffering is the, is the end goal, right? Yeah. That, it, that existence is bolstered by desire and desire leads to suffering, right? It's almost a weird Yoda type thing, right? Instead of- Yeah, anger fear, leads to hate, hate leads yeah, to fear, fear of the dark side. Yeah, instead of that dialectic of fear to hate, um, you know, it's, it is this- this dialectic of existence through desire, through suffering. Right. And so the whole goal is to get off the wheel of existence and, and to, and to eliminate desire and to not be reborn. And this is why Nietzsche eventually will make this break with Schopenhauer and see in that a kind of exhaustion, another yeah. form of exhaustion. Right. And I mean, then to Deleuze's difference in repetition also kind of sort of picks up a little bit of that, discussion right or especially in the conclusion yes with with the question of the eternal return and the extremes returning you know because it is about this transcendental violence this discord and accord of the faculties and pushing each one to the limit of what they can do based on this violence taken to their limit that's for Deleuze how we get to this transcendental empiricism of images of thought and, and potentially to thought without image or with Guattari, he's wanting to think about body without image because he's trying to rethink the imaginary in Lacan's sense. But yeah, I mean, yeah. The, well, this... body, body without image is how they describe the body without organs in this chapter too. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the body. The body of the ego, for example, which would be used you know, as the principal means by which we go through the mirror phase and form these identifications with other individuals, particularly based on our caregivers, our mother and our father, right? Mm -hmm. This is particularly why the body without image is so important because it, it short circuits and detours around this Freudo-Lacanian psychoanalytic apparatus of using identifications to understand, using familial identifications to understand how we, you know, develop things like the superego and, 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 and go through the Oedipus complex and deal with castration, all these big categories of negativity and of, uh, right. and of social repression in both mm -hmm. sense, right. Or social and psychic, but yeah, go on. So there's that element of desire there, but then there's also like con drawing from Hegel, like the negativity of that, that goes to Stirner and this I, and I think even you can find a discussion of with the Luz where he's talking about the I being interesting in that 
It's the only, I think, pronoun that refers back to only itself. It has this self-reflexivity. If we go back to German idealism and Fichte, yeah, the, the, the self, non-self, or the I, non-I, and even go back further to Descartes, right, and the cogito, which mm. they bring back, they bring up at the end I of the chapter. I think, therefore, I am, yeah. Right. They, they show that the child is this bastard orphan cogito without, you know, it's, this is just following along kind of what I was saying a little bit about the short, uh, short circuiting the, the identifications of, of parental imagery, right? It, that, that insofar as the unconscious is an orphan, they try to dismantle the importance of relying on the I as this shifting pronoun that, that is self-identical. Because even Lacan with Bonvenist, you know, the linguist knew that the development of pronouns, and Guattari focuses on this in the anti-Oedipus papers a lot, but it's this notion that it's late, late in development of the psychical apparatus or whatever, late in, in mental development that children begin to not only use the term I, but to understand its grammatical import. So there is, it's concomitant with the, what Freud would call the you know, the development of the ego, right? Because we're not born either with an ego or a unconscious and traditional psychoanalytic theory. That's something that develops through language, but also develops through our, you know, neurologically, our, our brains developing and these other things. It's like coming in language, This these shifters of I and you pronouns, they're, they're all mixed up and, and not stable formations in early youth. One thing I wanted to touch on too was this, the just to the whole idea of desiring machines. I think it's very important to, you know, they make a point to say these are real, these are real machines. They're not figurative. And I think it's interesting too that they rely or they discuss Marx quite a bit in this relative to this discussion of, of desiring machines. They bring up, well, they bring up Marx, as we said earlier, um, in terms of, the synthesis of consumption consummation, right? Where we, we quoted him as saying suffering is a form of self-enjoyment. They also bring up Marx later when they are discussing desire as the social, desire and the social, desiring machines in terms of, what's the quote? The quote is that, you know, we can't tell from the taste of wheat who grew it or what, this is on page 24. Yeah, the taste of wheat tells you nothing about, about how it was produced or the person that produced it, etc. Right, and so that's a paraphrase. <laughs> right, they're talking about how um, this is in the discussion of schizophrenia. So this is a nice segue to what we were just talking about with the eye. And, you know, we mentioned that every name in history is I. That's, that's, that's Nietzsche's kind of delirium. But Which also, is such a great, that's such a great fucking... Well, it's, it's memeable and quotable. They also talk about, you know... I think before we get to that quote about Marx, we, we should juxtapose it with the quote where they talk about Oedipus complex is this, is this analytic imperialism. It's this imperial, and he'll even, they'll talk about it later in terms of Klein. It's a kind of terrorism of, in a different context, but here it's this imperialism of forcing the schizophrenic to say I, even when right. the schizophrenic is like, they're trying to fuck me over again. I'm not going to say I anymore. Yeah. Um, well, but, that's what they say that why Freud doesn't like schizos, schizophrenics is because they reject Oedipalization. Yes. They mistake words for things. They're apathetic, narcissistic, cut off from reality. They have a resistance to Oedipalization. 
they are incapable of achieving transference. And I think that that's important, right? Because it would take an eye, a more or less stable ego to enter the analytic transferential relations relationship of sort of this play of misrecognition and the mirror, the mirroring that Lacan goes into, right? So they, the, the transference doesn't stick and they there's resemble philosophy. Nothing for it to, there's nothing for it to stick to because this surface is too... That's a good point to, to make, yeah. What if we think about it in terms of the libidinal band and like the, the band is too heated up to... Because mm-hmm. like if you heat something up, right, you can't paint it or it won't... Pigment doesn't adhere to things as well when they're heated up in most cases, I think. The molecules are, are, are moving too quickly, right? Right, so yeah, exactly. It reminds me of when they first talk about the body without organs as sort of counter producing this amorphous fluid Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. In, 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 in its attempt to paranoically reject or cast off the desired machines. Because the body without organs is anti-productive or. Right here. Yes, here it is. Yeah. It's and which I didn't quite understand what they meant in that sense. Exactly. How it's anti-productive or anti-production maybe is the word they use. Right. I mean, we, we could go back to. The full body without organs is the unproductive, the sterile, the unengendered, the unconsumable. One of the things that they also bring up Schreber, right? If you remember in our discussion of Schreber, Schreber talks about how God has kind of fixated on him as this monumental individual and how normally for most people, unless they're great people, so Schreber is kind of self-aggrandizing, but unless they're a Goethe or a, what's another example, von Bismarck, right? Unless they're these great personages, God only has to do with corpses. But because, because of Schreber's kind of, he's an, he's an elected, he's a, he's a chosen one, if you will. God has chosen him to, with whom to procreate and has tasked him. I, I can think of the meme. There's the, the Chad Wojak that's like, you know, why are you giving me these challenges? And oh, yeah. the Jesus yeah. meme is like, you're my greatest soldier, whatever the fuck. You know what I'm talking right, about. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. But Schreber is, even before he has this delirium, this lived experience of becoming a woman in his hypochondriacal state, preceding that, he uh, begins to have these delusions that his body is rotting. And this continues after his entrance into the asylum. And he has this feeling that when he's drinking or he's eating, his, his larynx is being swallowed with his food and his stomach is dissolving in its process of digestion. He is, I, he is like effectively ideating some of the stuff about desiring machines breaking down. We can come back to that in a second. But yeah, yeah. It's precisely insofar as he is in communication or in this direct association with the 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 healing rays of god the nerves the divine nerves they are regenerating his organs faster than they dissolve <laughs> right so so this is why he he doesn't just fall apart right and that's the tension between the either the attraction repulsion as they say between the desiring machines or organ machines uh, and the body without organs or we could say the miraculating and demiraculating tension of the design machines and the paranoid machines uh, of you know the body without organs, et cetera. But you had a quote. 
Oh, yeah, I was going to go. This was a good quote, I think, to kind of what I was jumping on in terms of this discussion of the body without organs, at least as it's articulated in this particular chapter. The body without organs is non-productive. Nonetheless, it is produced at a certain place and a certain time in connective synthesis as the identity of producing and the product. The schizophrenic table is a body without organs. The body without organs is not the proof of an original nothingness, nor is it what remains of a lost totality. Above all, it is not a projection. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the body itself or with an image of the body. It is the body without image. This imageless, organless body, the non-productive, exists right there where it is produced in the third stage of the binary linear series. It is perpetually reinserted into the process of production. The catatonic body is produced in the water of the hydrotherapy tub. The full body without organs belongs to the realm of anti-production, but yet another characteristic of the connective or productive synthesis is the fact that it couples production with anti-production with an element of anti-production. And that's page eight. That's the end of that first section on the desire on desiring production. And, you know, part of the tension is, is them flirting with the notion of death drive, right? That, you could, if you wanted to be Freudian about it, talk about the, the difference between Eros and, and, and Thanatos here, building up and breaking down. But the important thing is, and this gets to them turning to Marx yet again later in the chapter when they say that, you know, in technical industrial production under capitalism, the whole idea of technical machines is that factored into the development of surplus value is the breaking down of the machine. That literally the machine breaking down is, is one of the sources, is kind of factored in into the production of surplus value. But they say, unlike technical... Yeah, they even mentioned machines, fixed capital. They mentioned machines as like fixed capital even. Too. Right, they, they, do, they do mention that as well. And that's earlier on. But their, their main point about desiring machines is that as another memeable thing is that they, they work when breaking down. Right. They work by yeah. continually. They, they work best down. when broken, when break down, when they break down rather. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's precisely, again, the tension of desiring machines and the production of the, of the sterile non-productive body without organs, right? That is precisely this tension between the desiring machines and the body without organs as recording surface falling back on those machines, but also trying to, to cast them off, right? Because, because it can't stand them. I think this little quote might help jumps off here. The genesis of the machine lies precisely here in the opposition of the process of production of the desiring machines and the non-productive stasis of the body without organs. The anonymous nature of the machine and the non-differentiated nature of its surface are proof of this. Projecting enters the picture only secondarily, as does counter-investment, as the body without organs invests a counter-inside or a counter-outside in the form of a persecuting organ or some exterior agent of persecution. But in and of itself, the paranoiac machine is merely an avatar of the desiring machines as a result of the relationship between the desiring machines and the body without organs, and occurs when the latter can no longer tolerate these machines. Now, this is important. Maybe not quite. No, I don't know. I, I think this is important because, again, we have to, I think, again, they are deriving some of these statements from the Schreiber case because Freud is trying to understand how paranoia 
not only what is not only what lies behind the genesis of paranoia, which we talked about a little bit with this becoming woman, with you know, and for Deleuze and Guattari, the the delirium, the lived experience, the feeling of becoming woman is primary, and Freud kind of agrees with that too. But he wants to see in that he wants to put more emphasis on the delusion rather than on the feeling. So Freud wants to take how is it that paranoiac delusions in this reconfiguration of external reality, right? In Schreber's imagining that he is chosen to reproduce the population of humanity because all other humans are supposedly in the delusion, they're already dead. And any avatars of humanity are merely fleetingly improvised men. So Freud is trying to think what in the genesis of, of this extreme case of paranoia and delusions leads to this feeling of persecution. And for him, it's projection. So we really do need to think, uh, and I'll, like really quickly, uh, projection, I'll just give the second definition in the language of psychoanalysis, where they say, in the properly psychoanalytic sense, projection is an operation whereby qualities, feelings, wishes, or even objects which the subject refuses to recognize or rejects in himself are expelled from the self and located in another person or thing. Projection so understood is a defense of very primitive origin, which may be seen at work, especially in paranoia, but also in normal modes of thought, such as superstition. So what we see here is that Deleuze and Guattari are not content with Freud's introduction of a term like projection to understand how paranoia works. For them, projection would be secondary or would be an epiphenomenal or really just a representational analytic way of short-circuiting or covering over, sweeping under the rug, the work of this tension between desiring machines as productive and paranoiac machines as anti-productive. Does that make sense? So like for them, the primordial rejection is the body without organs rejecting the organ machines and not some sort of psychical projection onto other people like Fleshig or the orderlies or even God, right? As the, as the persecuting entity that would somehow, you know, for, I mean, I, I think for them that that totally uh, misrecognizes the role of desire or the role of machines, desiring machines, really the role of the production, anti-production tension. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't do justice to Schreber's fundamental lived reality. It tries to um, theatrically represent it as this movement of in internal and external, which is why they bring up this question of investing a counter inside or a counter outside, yeah, yeah. rather than it being a psychical projection of the mind or of ideational or even a sort of projection of, of affective energy in some sort of diffuse and vague way, for them, it is essentially a question of production and anti-production. I think that that's why anti-production is, is a little bit vague in this stage of the book, because they don't, they neither fully define it, but they also, but you can also see in anti-Oedipus papers that Guattari is, is still trying to himself suss out the the consequences of such a concept. Mm -hmm. I think we will see as we go further more and more clearly what anti-production means in a in this framework. But I, I think that 
I think that turning to psychoanalysis in the Straber case is going to be really important for us to keep in mind where Deleuze and Guattari are getting some of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. What do you think about this too, as far as body without organs? They say that the body without organs is not God, quite the contrary, but the energy that sweeps through it is divine. When it attracts to itself the entire process of production and ser- server as its miraculate enchanted surface, inscribing it each and every one of its disjunctions, hence the strange relationship that Straber has with God. To anyone who asks, do you believe in God? We should reply in strict Kantian or Schreberian terms, of course, but only as the master of the disjunctive syllogism or as its a priori principle, God defined as the omnitudo realitatis, from which all secondary realities are derived by a process of division. Hence, the yeah. sole thing that is divine is the nature of an energy of disjunctions. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, I'll leave aside the, the Kantian point because Deleuze himself writes on this elsewhere that but of course, it's it's this question of even in Schreber, God is already divided into a higher and lower right. kingdom, as we said, with the yeah. different races animating it with um, Orismond and Ariman and Ormans. I forget how you pronounce it, but you have these different you have the higher and lower kingdoms, the higher the the four gates and the and the anti-gates, and you have the different races animating them. And yet, the Shreiberian god is the end-all, be-all of reality. So it can be, I guess the question would be, we will see later that the question of disjunction, the the either-or, we normally think of disjunctions as as either-or, either this or that. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we've covered this with uh, Leotard, right? As the libidinal band starts to slow down, we see concomitant with that the rise of representation, which is centrally implicated by a by a this that is not a that, right? By, by a thisness and a thatness, and and being able to make distinctions. And for uh, Deleuze and Guattari, as we'll see in, with the the paralogisms of, that the syntheses lead to, one of the questions is in traditional representational or even analytic theory this disjunction of an either or is used in exclusive fashion. And it's one of the ways of sort of tying up the unconscious within itself and suffocating it. And of course, you know, if, you know, God is the master of syllogisms, you know, for Deleuze Guattari with a non-restrictive and non-exclusive use of disjunctions, it's either or, 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 or ad infinitum without being and I think that, I mean, what, what I would do quickly is, is just bring it back to the, the sweep of the subject along this arc of becomings that, again, when Nietzsche says every name in history is I, it's not, it's not either Dionysus or Christ, right, as mm-hmm. he signs some of his last letters. <laughs> it is an inclusive disjunction that doesn't discriminate in a way that would kind of do violence to the binary, if you will. It's the same thing that, that with Schreber, Schreber's becoming woman is primary, but it's also implicated in the necessary modifications of the of his feeling, right, of this becoming in order to in order to be a vessel for for God's insemination and for re- recreating humanity. And so it's this question, it's like, well, is Schreber man or woman? And they point out that, you know, he is 
you know, he is either man or woman, but in these non-communicating series, right? I'll leave that aside because I, I can't find it. But the, I think one of the interesting things about the disjunction is at the end of that, uh, at that section about the disjunctive synthesis, they bring up, say, a typical schizo being analyzed. And, you know, the schizo keeps saying God, Schreiber keeps saying God, and the analyst is saying, like, don't you mean your father? <laughs> and the schizo may play along and say, yeah, sure, my father. But then surreptitiously and very quickly, he'll re-impregnate all of this. But little by little, he will surreptitiously, quote unquote, re-impregnate the series of young girls with all talking birds because Freud wants to see in the, in, the, in, the birds, in the birds that talk to Schreiber, these young girls, uh, his father with the superior God and his brother with the inferior God, all of them divine forms that become complicated or rather desimplified as they break through the simplistic terms and functions of the edible triangle. So like for the schizo, it's not about an exclusive, is this your father or the superior God? Is this, you know, is this not the superior God? Is this not, is the superior God, not your father? Is the inferior God, not your brother? And the schizo is like, yeah, sure. But without obeying that, without that exclusivity sticking, I think that's the primordial nature of the inclusivity of the recording process, that it's not willing to make those distinctions or, or it's, it's not willing to uh, allow itself to be inscribed into or cut out into the, the Oedipal triangle, which, which would tie off the unconscious at both ends and force it into a kind of recording that would do an injustice, right, to, the, to how the process of recording recording is produced by the process of production. We'll become much more familiar with these terms later, but I do think the, the Schreiberian framework is a good way of, of sort of foregrounding some of the stuff. Something that was along the lines, well, jumping off a little bit, but still within like this discussion of the body without organs is I think intensities and I was kind of interested in how they mentioned here the forces of attraction and repulsion of soaring ascents and plunging falls produce a series of intensive states based on the intensity equals zero that designates the body without organs. But what is most unusual is that here again, a new infl a flux is necessary merely to signify this absence. And then they go on to that section about Nietzsche that we've already kind of discussed with I being every name in history, but... I was sort of interested in this zero as it relates to back to uh, the great zero that gets referenced in libidinal economy. And if there's anything, yes. yeah, perhaps uh, relationship wise between because I think perhaps would you agree that at least in a certain way, the great ephemeral skin and the body without organs are at least have some type. It's a similar, Yeah, there's an. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this, I remember very vividly talking to you about this, where Leotar, he mentions this late in the book about there being two uses of, of zero, what we could say that it, one would be exclusive, one would be non-exclusive. And this is why I vacillated between whether or not I was understanding Leotar's early usages of the great zero. And I do think that, yes, this is one of the ways in which, at least in the anti-Oedipus body with organs is described, is that the way I would like to put it is that if we consider what we already talked about, about whether we call it Deleuze's affirmationism or his quote-unquote positivity, as opposed to the negativity of lack, 
and in this section specifically where this quote comes from in the question of, of the subject, right? In the question of the synthesis of consumption and consummation, this question of the little shares of, of enjoyment that fall to the subject. Desire is not, if we think of it intensively, desire is not a negative intensity, so to speak, from the aspect of zero. It's not like a, a minus sign that requires the plus sign of, a, of an object or vice versa, that all intensities on the body without organs are, are cumulative, if you will. And cumulative is not even a good word, but that they are, they are felt, they are experienced, or they are conceivable only in a, in a way in which they are, they are positive forces, right? That they add up together, that they don't cancel each other out, say like wavelengths or something mm -hmm. like that. Because then we get back into this logic of, of negation and this logic of, again, or this logic of exclusivity that you have like Nietzsche the writer versus Nietzsche the philologist versus Nietzsche the anti-Christian or Nietzsche the German or Nietzsche the, even the, the Polish as he, I don't know if he was ironic or not, but he, <laughs> he, he maintained that he couldn't be German, right? So none of these are necessarily in conflict. They're not in opposition. They're not in. They're not in contradiction, right? They're all. They're all these states through which the quote-unquote Nietzsche subject passes. And so, yeah, I think that that's how they want to think of desire. Desire is as you know these based on body without organs as zero degree, right? They are. They are positive integers if we <laughs> if we use the numerical way of representing them. I don't know. I thought this was interesting to you about. We didn't. I don't think we discussed this, did we? About the one kind of being production, being production of the real. Yeah. Uh, do you have a quote there that we can work off of? Yeah, but at this, but at the same time, they are the same machines, despite the fact that they are governed by two different regimes, and despite the fact that it is admittedly a strange adventure for desire to desire repression. There is only one kind of production: the production of the real. Yes. Uh, this notion of different regimes is going to be important throughout the book because for them, technical machines and social machines, right? They are, they are the same and they are the same machines, but considered from different angles, from different regimes. Right. And an example, a great example that they don't say here, but that we see, for example, with Heidegger talking about technology is like the development of the clock and the con two talks about the development of the clock. And I think in seminar two or three, but it's, you know, obviously you have the technical side of the clock, which, you know, divides up a 24 hour day in a way that can make it measurable. But obviously there is also the social function of dividing up of the workday. And it's the same machine, but under two different regimes, right? So this, I think is, this, I think is why they can say that by arguing that there is desire and the social and nothing else, first of all, they will be able to do away with a burdensome theory of ideology, a theory of infrastructure and superstructures, right? This hierarchization of thoughts, ideas, and, and whatever on, on top of what's like working on the ground, right? They, they want to, uh, to kind of show that they want to collapse that and flatten it and show that desire is, is running through the infrastructure. It's not, it's not something that's like, top down or yeah, um, yeah. 
or you know, in a Freudian sense and outside of a Marxist sense, they they want to show that desire is automatically plugged into the social and doesn't need to be sublimated or neutralized. Or on the other hand, that it uh, there is not some sort of you know desexualized libido that would be the product of of social that would tap into the social, right? As though the individual were the sexual ones and the social were were the realm of of desexualized impulses, and so. I think that that's where they want to say desire produces the real. Now, of course, they are also having this discussion with Lacan, mm-hmm. right? For whom the real is the impossible real. And they even like quote this question of the impossible real a few times, I think in this chapter, but this question, I think that if you, whether we look at, um, you know, as I said, Marx and superstructure or infrastructure, or whether we look at Freud. Super, and, yeah. Superstructure and ba- or base and superstructure, right? Right. Or if you look at Freud and, um, this question of sublimation, uh, this question of civilization as discontents, or if we look at Lacan, right, with desire for Lacan, as, as we've seen in the very beginning of um, Seminar 3 on the, on the psychosis, he turns to ethology, he turns to bird mating rituals and tries to see how these uh, manufactured lures can be used to manipulate certain birds to begin um, these mating rituals because of an identificatory and imaginary, in his sense of the term, right, this imagistic way of manipulating sexuality. And for Deleuze and Guattari, this is to circumscribe desire merely within the symbolic imaginary would lead to the same impasses that we see it would be similar impasses that we see Reich and Marcuse or Freud himself fall into and back into this kind of, back into this, really a kind of impoverization of, uh, impoverishing of, of desire and its, and its productivity, right? It's a way of kind of sort of neutralizing it or a way of even bastardizing it and, um, and unplugging it. Do you think that Lacan's quote from Seminar 3 has any relevance here, even as a foil in that sense of the repression or what is repressed in the, what was it, in the symbolic reemerges in the real? Or? Right. What is denied entrance in, yeah, the, okay. in the symbolic, right? It come, uh, returns in the real. And of course, Lacan here, he is, he's dealing with the same kind of material, right? He's dealing yeah. with the Schraber case. He's dealing with how he's, he himself is trying to understand through, uh, let's say, structural linguistics, but also with these Freudian categories of not disavowal, but of repudiation or what he calls foreclosure to understand the genesis of, par- of paranoias, of, of psychoses, and how Schreber is able to, or, or, or what, is, what is it in, in, what is it denied entry into Schreber's symbolic universe that, that causes these delusions to take on life in the real, so to speak, right? And of course, Lacan is going to focus on you know, Schreber's discussion of an elementary language that God speaks to him in, which is a kind of old, yet elegant German, obviously for him, because he's, he's German, right? But, uh, and so he's going to focus on the role of signifying chains, right? And the role of, say, the, the transcendental signified of the phallus, which is removed from the signifying chain, yet determines it. And this is why at the end of this chapter, we see Guattari's polemic, because there is a sense in which uh, a good 
art of anti-Oedipus has to be thought of as a polemic. This gets us back to right. it's, its echoes with Antichrist, its echoes with anti-During, its echoes with Caesar's anti-Cato. It, it has a polemical side. And one of the polemics against Lacan, even if they are, even if they are using Lacan in a way that's complementary in this text, one of the one of Guattari's bones to pick with him, even without saying his name, but it's obvious, is um, this is when he's talking about the different breaks for each synthesis, right? Breaks and flows for the connective syntheses, right? Every machine is a machine of a machine, so it's always cutting off a flow interrupting a flow and siphoning right. it off like the mouth and the breast and mm-hmm. the anus and the, the sphincter and the, and the flow of shit. But they also talk about, they bring up Lacan. This is on page 38. They bring up Lacan's um, purloin letter, which is a great little essay. Right. And, and they talk about signifying chains, right? And this is where they say that every machine has a sort of code built into it, stored up inside it. This is where they will start to introduce the notion of a surplus value of code which we'll uh, definitely get into yeah. in the future. Well, uh, that's good. I think that's a good segue to till we can get into coding or surplus right. code. Right. They do so, they do spend some time here. Yeah. And they but they do say that like for Guattari, his polemical polemic is that no chain is homogeneous. And so like for Guattari, his within it, within each chain yeah. Within each individual chain of signifiers, it's heterogeneous, right? Right. It's heterogeneous and that the signs themselves that compose the signifying chain do not themselves signify. This is why Guattari and Machinic Unconscious will continually lay stress on a signifying sign, right. which sounds like a... Which I sounds have to, tr- to our, <laughs> have hard time. Yeah, it, have a hard well, time with that. Without, to our ear, it sounds it sounds counterintuitive. Right. Yeah. But exactly. he'll, he'll bring up, you know, he brings up Markov chains. Um, one can Watery will also be fascinated with DNA and RNA and how they replicate. I think they even kind of quote. They do quote some biologists, but they say, you know, he's wanting to make up that like. These chains, as you said, they're heterogeneous. So they they say each chain captures fragments of other chains from which it extracts a surplus value, just as the orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp. This is a something that they will they got from they got from a biologist linguist uh, Remy Chauvin this notion of the orchid and the wasp, and that these are like a parallel becomings. This is what they'll talk about in terms of a thousand plateaus. And that somehow the wasp is able to tap into the the code of the orchid, and there is a surplus value that's extracted. They'll also talk about these interesting of cat and baboon DNA later too. So obviously DNA and RNA, uh, those chains of signs don't signify anything, right? And I think that that's like a primary example of Guattari saying this type of writing, if it can be called a writing script system, an inscription system, it writes flush with the real, right? It writes right on the real. It's not representing anything. It's not discursive, et cetera. Having trouble with that, con- ha- uh, with how RNA and DNA are not signifying anything. Aren't they literal code? So how can they? This is something that they address in... In a thousand plateaus, both in the rhizome plateau, the introduction, and in uh, the postulates of linguistics, where the main point being is that codes and languages are not the same, right? It's only within languages as we know it, as we understand it, within what Lacan calls the realm of the human, which is the symbolic with a capital S, 
English, you know, in the, in the realm of the symbolic, you know, where we as humans kind of are born into a world wherein language precedes us and it has a historical basis and even our own positions in the quote unquote signifying chain is, is filled before we are born, right? We not only with gender reveal parties and their explosions, but like <laughs> with our, uh, with parents settling on a name and all of that that comes into it, right? We we inherit this whole uh, the structuralism of of language, and we participate in it in order to try to make ourselves be understood and try to participate in communication, yada yada yada. Um, you know, for Deleuze and Guattari, obviously, like the primor the primal level of language is not information or communication, but order words, right? It's a question of ordering both in both senses. Now with codes, you know, and they'll also go back into the relevance of codes for territories and self-vibrating intensities of milieus, et cetera. I don't want to go too far afield, but the, right. the point about codes is that the code that the orchid extracts, the surplus value of code that the orchid gives off to the wasp, right? And allows for this interesting a parallel becoming a parallel evolution, right, even is what they call it. It has nothing to do with, with the language or with signifying, right? It's not that the orchid signifies something to the wasp who interprets it or who is in sort of a symbolic relationship with it in the Lacanian sense, right? There's no signification going on, even if there are what Guattari might call science points that have these intensive relationships, Right. So RNA and DNA don't necessarily signify something in a regime of, you know, binary oppositions like we would see in a Caesarian elaboration of what linguistic systems do, etc. Um, so to say that DNA has a language is really an anthropomorphization of and even to, like this is why they say, like, if all of these transmissions and recordings of these heterogeneous elements in the chains, if we can call it a writing system, and that if is important, right? Because because even to call it a writing system, it brings up certain prejudices and biases and certain preconceptions that we harbor about what writing entails. And we'll see what writing becomes in chapter three of Anti-Oedipus with the despotic date. I think that the thing is for Guattari, RNA and DNA, quote unquote, write and inscribe and record directly on the real. They produce, we know they do. We know that's how, that's, that's what genetics entails or tries to study. We represent, and we try to represent DNA and break it down into amino acids and even can, uh, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. you know, we, we even can, can isolate four different types and they're varying. Yeah. And Ad even if right. adenine, cysteine, diacine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And we see that humans are our closest in terms of resemblance of the chains or closest species is chimpanzees, but we're pretty damn close, like relatively speaking percentage wise to like bananas and shit. Right. So it's, yeah. so this, but this notion of resemblance, it's not like one word resembling another, right. It's not mm -hmm. like, so the role of linguistics for Guattari here shows to not go far enough in its abilities to articulate the machinations of desire, right? The the machinic unconscious, as he as he calls it elsewhere, right? It's this is I think what's important for Guattari to stress that this anthropomorphization of language, of sex, of desire 
etc covers over in a misrecognition we we, we like see ourselves because it, that's easy for us and, and and that's commonsensical way of of trying to understand the world we do it a service really in terms of science and 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 understanding we do we do a disservice also to the 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 realm of desire and its possibilities by imposing this matrix and oedipus is just one of those symptoms but it's also this a symptom of imperialism and colonialism again which we'll see later you know they will say that oedipus is is kind of a is consubstantial with colonial projects but here hopefully I gave a little bit of indications of why codes and languages are not, they're not the same thing. Bees, we talk about bees having a language, right? Because one bee can... Yeah, they communicate can, with those chemical they can They can point, right? they can, they can point another bee to where they've been, but they can't disseminate that information in, in an indirect way in what Guattari calls uh, indirect communication or the illocutionary. They lack some of the regimes. So really their little dances of pointing and their deixis doesn't, doesn't constitute a language full, fully speaking. It's much more similar to a code and the assimilation of a code. Of course, things get more interesting when we talk about like computer languages. Even there, there's the slippage between code and language. Of course, one trained in the code can read, so to speak, but does the code signify? We know it has effects. We know it produces something. We know machinically <laughs> it works, but does it signify? No, it doesn't have to, right? So I was going to ask if there was any significance or relation with the orchid and the wasp and when Leotar gets into the madam with the John and the surplus enjoyment. That's interesting. That's extracted in their relation there. I don't know. That seems somewhat analogous, right? Because you're dealing with reproduction in both cases. Well, not I guess not reproduction necessarily, at least not directly, right? But I guess in the context of the orchid and the wasp, right? There's the wasp is helping facilitate reproduction. Yes. And the orchid entices or acts as a lure or, or a screen for the wasp in a certain way that probably yields some sort of pleasure, right? I mean, I think that the only difference would be obviously that with the case of the of the madam enjoying the Jean, she's sort of quote unquote transgressing the role assigned to her, which is merely to extract a surplus value, monetary financial surplus value in her occupation rather than and, and that is supposed to be distinct from her taking pleasure in yeah. her work. And we see that, you know, Leotar focusing on, well, first I know it's Bataille's madam, Eduarda, right? Yeah. And then and then it's and then he turns to analyzing Klasowski, which is a different text. But you know, yeah, I mean like that would be where the analogy would break down, right? Is that her taking pleasure because honestly we know that a good whore, a good madam is supposed to simulate the pleasure that, right. oh, you, you got a big cock. Oh, you're making me come. You know, Game of Thrones has a great episode on it when Littlefinger is trying to train the, the two girls going down on each other and stuff, how to trick the man into thinking that he's the best lay they've ever had. You can't try to escalate the 
signs of desire and arousal too quickly, right? It has to feel natural. It has to be theatrically plausible rather than just starting at 100 miles per hour and, and screaming your head off. It, it has to, to build up this momentum that simulates the a quote-unquote real act of copulation. And what Eduarda does, what Madame Eduarda does is actually kind of cross that or, or blur, scramble those lines and take pleasure in, the, in an act wherein she's either only supposed to simulate that pleasure just to keep a, one could think to keep a client from, to come back, right? Because you won't repeat business. So yeah, I mean, she, she seems to kind of like violate a, an unwritten law, if you will, by taking pleasure from this act that is merely meant to, the surplus value is meant to be, to be money and not to become or, or her orgasm. I do think that's an interesting analogy, though. I guess it's, it's complicated mainly complicated by commerce. By right, financial, yeah. yeah. It's the surplus. It's still like dealing with that kind of sur- surplus code, surplus jouissance, I guess. Maybe that's the, interesting. The connection there. But I guess along those lines, really, maybe the last big topic here for me would be I don't know if we want to go a bit more into this problematization of Lacan's Lacanian lack as, or desire as lack, and where that perhaps breaks down and why potentially machinic desire, desiring machines are a better model for desire? It is interesting. I think that for now, uh, I know we have talked about Lacan a little bit today. I think that we could save the discussion of Lacan for later. What I would suggest is, let me see if I can find, I know I've told, I said the page earlier. Okay, (laughs) so page 25 is where I have it. They say, to a certain degree, the traditional logic of desire is all wrong from the very outset, from the very first step that the platonic logic of desire forces us to take, making us choose between production and acquisition. From the moment that we place desire on the side of acquisition, we make desire an idealistic, dialectical, nihilistic conception, which causes us to look upon it as primarily a lack, a lack of an object, a lack of the real object. It is true that the other side, the production side, has not been entirely ignored. And this is where they bring up Kant, which I talked about a little bit earlier about this yeah here too is very interesting not on this page but i think they discuss desire not that lack is desire but that desire produces lack yes that's good no this is good um no that's that's actually a great way to wrap up maybe not um obviously our whole discussion of the chapter but yes i'm so glad you brought that up Uh, at least wrap up today's foray into some of the big topics. This is where they cite Maurice Clavel, whom I don't know, uh, but they cite his critique of Sartre's critique of dialectical reason. Because the way the critique of dialectical reason begins after the introduction, the very long introduction, (laughs) it posits that it basically wants to begin its Marxist analysis of economical relations of of these uh, social relations based on scarcity. And they will return to this again in chapter three and show why this is wrong, why one can't even begin with exchange. But scarcity is is even further afield from beginning with exchange, right? They'll want to begin with the marking of bodies, which is where Nietzsche and the genealogy of morals, morals becomes very important. But here they do say lack is created, planned and organized in and through social production. It is counterproduced as a result of the pressure of anti production. The deliberate creation of lack as a function of market economy is the art of a dominant class. By starting with scarcity, you know, in their terms, one again reinstates desire as fantasy, as an epiphenomenon, 
rather than as a material root and source and production. Which that's interesting, I think. And there, the, the footnote is, Marxist philosophy cannot allow itself to introduce the notion of scarcity as its initial premise, quote, such a scarcity antedating exploitation makes the law of supply and demand a reality that will remain forever independent since it is situated at a primordial level. Hence, it is no longer a question of including or deducing this law within Marxism since it is immediately evident at a prior stage at a level from which Marxism itself derives. Being a rigorous thinker, Marx refuses to employ the notion of scarcity and is quite correct to do so for this category would be his undoing. It may not have been meant as a complete repudiation of Sartre, but it is a kind of a damning point to make because that means the next six, seven hundred pages of the work are built on sand right, of critique of dialectic reason, of Sartre's last master work. And, you know, as I said in chapter three, they'll show that one cannot even begin with basing economical relations on exchange, libidinal relations on exchange, because exchange presupposes already a, a marking of bodies, which we'll, which we'll get to. Did you have a, maybe another quote? We talked about recording, about desire recording on the surface, there we discussed a bit about body without organs. We discussed somewhat about machinic production and why that is. These are real objects. So I don't know if there's necessarily anything else that, that I really had, at least today, to kind of go into. Yeah, I guess the last thing I would say to finish today's discussion would be they make an interesting point that, as Marx points out, on the one hand... Oh, they say the real is not impossible. It is simply more and more artificial. I thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah, that's good. And then they turn to Marx and say, like, with the with the tendency to a falling rate of profit, there is also this increase in the absolute quantity of surplus value, which he calls the law of the counteracted tendency. They analogize that to the rate of capitalism to decode the the flows right because as we'll see in chapter three especially if the primitive territorial machine's role is to code the flows and to not let allow any flows to escape that coding and the despotic machine is to overcode those thereby instituting a kind of written language that would disseminate the decrees and the laws of the tyrant of the despot the role of capitalism is to continuously decode these flows and, and allow for the abstract uh, mobility and movement of money, et cetera. So, so the analogy of the counteracted tendency of Marx's counteracted tendency is capitalism's decoding of deterritorialized flows on the one hand and their violent and artificial re-territorialization on the other. And I think that this is a nice way to circle back a little bit to yeah. three ecologies with Guattari's point about, you know, we can't just assume that because capitalism is further and further pushing towards its limit, it's also at the same time counteracting that limit. And so we see concomitant with that, concomitant with the deterritorializing of desire of flows, we see a rise and a pushback of nationalism, regionalism, fascism, all kinds of chauvinism and all kinds of all the worst kinds of reactionary tendencies, fundamentalisms, right? And so those two are not, it's not as though um, nation states or capital itself is opposed to the, the rise in reactionary conflagrations, right? It, it is a, it's part and parcel 
of it is a part of that libidinal form of the counteracted tendency, if oh, that makes yeah. sense. I think so. Do you want to wrap it up there? As I said, we, we didn't exhaust everything, but this is kind of a, a one of the, this is, this is some of the cool, this is some of the, the fun stuff that you and I were both peaked by that, that aroused our desire. And uh, <laughs> hopefully some of that is uh, helpful and interesting to, to our, to our listeners whom we, whom we love and enjoy. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Much appreciated. And then I think so the next week we're going to look at if anyone's following along episode by episode, we're going to be tackling Lacan seminar three with a couple of guests that should be exciting. And then we'll, I mean, I think we'll be mixing in installments of the anti-Oedipus series as we move forward. And hopefully we will um, be able to get some pretty, some interesting guests on here in the next couple of months. I think as we go into the summer, uh, we'll have more in the way of some interesting guests that have written books and done interesting work so but um that will be the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins signing off for the week the very rules of eating of negativity and singularity including the ultimate form of Surround you. We're in surround you. We're in surround you.